Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This weekend, as college students around the country were handed their diplomas, teaching assistant Hannah Clark attended graduation at Creighton University, a Jesuit school in Omaha, Nebraska, and she had a rare honor at the ceremony. We have a heritage edition of the St. John's Bible, which is the first hand-inscribed and hand-illuminated Bible since uh, the invention of the printing press. It's a beautiful book, and it's my job to walk down the aisle holding the Bible in the graduation ceremony. For Hannah, who graduated from school herself not too long ago, this honor also came with a bit of irony. I'm holding a, a book worth six figures in a graduation surrounded by students who I'm sure have accrued a lot of debt to be at that school. And I just hope that they and, and I can get out from under that debt and do so in time to make enough wealth to have a future and that our children could have a future. Today on The Takeaway, measuring our wealth and why it's so hard for so many Americans to accrue any at all. I don't want to pass on debt. I don't want my legacy to be in the negatives. You know, I want it to be something special and beautiful like the Bible that I'm carrying, not not the debt that I'm carrying. I'm Tanzina Vega and this is The Takeaway. are you worth? Not how much you earn in your paycheck, but how much are you actually worth when you add up your salary, what you own, your assets, your investments, minus what you owe? I have about two and a half million in assets. Net worth, 150K. I have no, quote, wealth. If I had more than that money, I wouldn't know what to do with it. Since the Great Recession and even before, it's been a challenge for Americans to accrue wealth. Over the past half century, one percenters have seen their wealth increase sevenfold. Families in the top 10% have seen five-fold increases in wealth. Those in the middle doubled their wealth, but those at the bottom of the wealth distribution went from having no wealth to being in debt. Throw race into the equation, and the disparities are enormous. Today, we start with two stories of trying to build wealth. The first is Hannah Clark, who we heard from at the top of the show. She's a 25-year-old teaching assistant at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, and a takeaway listener. Well, I remember when I graduated and I felt such pride because I had only accumulated about $20,000 in student loans. And compared to my friends who had gone to uh, larger institutions and didn't have as many scholarships, you know, they were, they were racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And I then looked at my wealth and my projected income, because I want to be an English teacher. And I realized that I wouldn't be accruing wealth. I, I wouldn't be raising my net worth above the negative for at least 20 years or more. So I was kind of looking at living life in debt for at least half of my life. It wasn't a, a very optimistic realization. <laughs> And and you mentioned the twenty thousand dollars in uh, student loan debt. I took out about twenty five thousand myself for a graduate degree. Uh, that was more than ten years ago, and I'm almost seeing the end of paying that off right now. 
Congrats. Yeah. So it's doable, but it's difficult. Let's talk a little bit about um, your wealth. Like, would you be comfortable sharing a little bit about either how much you owe, how much of that wealth you, you think you have, you think you're at negative wealth, zero, a little bit above that? Absolutely. You know, I don't have a lot of illusions about my wealth. I I am in the negative. I earn about $2,000 a month and that's with teaching. And then I have two other part-time jobs that I do on the side and I don't own any assets. You know, I I don't have an inheritance. I basically am hovering on kind of this bubble of debt that allows me to do my job and have a car and rent a place to live. But ultimately, if, you know, if the dues came up, if something happened and, and someone said, you need to to get this book to zero, I, I couldn't do that. I'm at least $20,000 negative when it comes to how much wealth I have, which is a weird idea to think about. Like the word wealth, it just sounds like I'm talking about a king or a landowner, but it's the whole idea of personal ownership and that we should be able to accrue things and value that we can pass on to other generations so that, you know, we don't have to start from scratch over and over again. And I'm not starting from scratch. I'm starting from negative. It's a very strange feeling. I mean, it sounds like you you worked really hard. You went to school. You did all the things you're supposed to do. And now you're working three jobs. I mean, yeah, does that no. fit with your notion of the American dream? <laughs> not really. As a English major, you look a lot at the progression of the American dream and how it went from, you know, the sort of Steinbeck people crossing, trying to get to California in the Dust Bowl up to the 1950s, where it was the house and the white picket fence. And my American dream is to just have enough money to exist (laughs) and uh, not have to fear that that existence is going to be endangered if the people that I owe money to are suddenly decide to call up the debts. So I I am a little disillusioned. Tell me a little bit about how your current financial situation and the wealth that you find yourself uh, lacking in many ways is affecting how you make decisions for your future. I was always very hesitant to pursue the goal of being an English teacher when I told people uh, majoring in English, they would always give me that look and say, oh, what are you going to do with that? And I'm a firm believer that you can do many things with any kind of degree. And it really matters more about you know, the, the work that you're doing and uh, the kind of also environment that you're in. But moving forward, I have, you know, my parents' medical bills continue to increase. I'm uh, choosing where I live based on cost of living. I'm still heavily weighing the choice of being an English teacher because of job market prospects and how I will be asked to pay off this debt for a large part of my life. And I'll probably accrue more. It seems like, at least here in America, if you want to play the game, you have to borrow money. You have to get into debt. If you could talk to the federal government, if you could talk directly to the president or even your local and state government, do you think they have a role in helping to fix this? And if so, what would you like to see? If I could talk to someone who could change the current situation, I would ask them to take a long look at the amount of debt that they are burdening the next generation with 
and to look beyond their own wealth and consider the wealth of the entire country because the next generation of workers are the wealth of the country. They are the people that are working to keep the economy alive, to keep culture and society functioning. And they can't do that if all of their money is going to pay off exorbitant educational costs. It's just not a sustainable system. From English teacher Hannah Clark, we now go to Julia Hinderley, who's 35 years old and lives in St. Paul, Minnesota. Julia's a truck driver, and that might not be the image you have in your mind when you think about people with wealth, but Julia does have wealth. And it's thanks to money that's been passed down through generations. A lot of people get down on government programs. Even people that I work with, people like me, don't necessarily think about how those government programs might have benefited them through their generations. And then one of the government programs that I know benefited me and my grandparents was the GI Bill and also being paid certain money from the government during World War II. Some of my grandparents were POWs, and so they got sort of a severance pay from the government after World War II was over and they were freed from POW camp. And I know that the GI Bill wasn't something that was equally distributed amongst all people. I think if you were a person of color, you basically got no benefit from it. So when you look at generational wealth and the disparities that still exist today, you can point to all kinds of reasons. And that's definitely one of them, that the service members of color weren't compensated the same way that white service members were. And when you think back on that, um, particularly the how service members of color and people of color, particularly black Americans, were left out of these you know, really able to take advantage of these programs. Does that change anything about the way you think about wealth? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the opportunities that I have, I don't feel like I necessarily deserve what wealth I have and what wealth I grew up with. I don't know. It's like (laughs) you want to feel like, oh, I worked hard for this money. And you can say, yeah, I worked hard for this money and my parents worked hard for money and my grandparents worked hard, but they're given an extra leg up. And where do you think you'd be without it, like your family, if they didn't have access to the GI Bill? Do you ever think about how uh, things would be different? I guess, yeah. I mean, it put my grandfather through college. My parents were able to buy a house with help from um, their parents. They were given help to buy a business. I now am living a pretty comfortable life because of that financial stability within my family. Um, I was able to do a lot of seasonal work and a lot of living all over the place. And if I hadn't known that I had family to go back and crash at their house, then I wouldn't have been able to do any of that before eventually settling down myself. And really what what you're talking about in terms of wealth, and I think one of the big misconceptions about it is it's different from income. And wealth is sort of a cushion, right, that allows you to sort of say, okay, I can take a chance, right? Exactly. It's a safety net <laughs> or a, it's, a, it's a net you can, if, you know, if you, you know that you have a net underneath you, so you feel a little bit more comfortable walking on the tightrope. Now let's talk a little bit about you, Julia. Tell us what your current job is. What's your current income level, if you don't mind sharing that with us. And then have you ever tried to figure out your own personal net worth? So my job is I am a, I'm a truck driver um, my income is between uh, $35,000 and $40,000 a year. I've looked into what my own net worth is as far as, you know, if I look at all my bank statements and 
what little I've got, you know, a retirement account. Um, I don't know, maybe $40,000. But if I were to liquidate all of my assets, I could put a down payment down for sure. And how does that situation compare to your peers? You're 35, single, live in Minnesota. How does your wealth situation compare to your peers? It's all over the place. I mean, I have peers who are very, very much in debt. And one of my big advantages is that I was able to go to a state school. I paid $4,000 a year for college. And a lot of my peers have a lot more school debt than I do. Then I have other friends who do more corporate jobs and do pretty well. So I'm probably on the lower end or the middle of different groups of friends and different people, different peers, different coworkers. A lot of my coworkers do own property and I don't, but I guess it's a luxury that I haven't felt financially insecure, even if I'm poor. I've had like the luxury of being poor because my family has been wealthy enough that I know that I have a cushion if I were to need it. The critical uh, thing to have, especially these days. Julia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Tansy, and I appreciate it. How does someone like Hannah Clark, the English teacher with $20,000 in debt working three jobs, get to be more like Julia Hinderley, the truck driver who says she's living a comfortable life, though her salary alone might qualify her as poor? Chuck Collins wrote a book called Wealth and Our Commonwealth, and he's the director of the Program on Inequality and the Common Good at the Institute for Policy Studies. According to Chuck, the challenge of building wealth for those who don't already have it has become a lot harder than we've seen in a long time. Typically, and this is really since you know World War II, people over their lifetimes accumulate wealth and savings and assets, and uh, over multiple generations, as people get older, they get more wealth. What we're seeing is that the millennial generation may be the first generation that overall as a group doesn't do as well as their parents' generation. And what about race? How does race factor in? We know there is a gigantic racial wealth gap, right? Yeah. And, uh, of course, this is one of the ways where, you know, four generations of – or going back even to, you know, prior to the formation of this country, the legacy of racism in, in wealth building shows up in the present. So what does that mean? Well, today uh, the median white family wealth is 35 times the median black family, 25 times the median Latino family. Uh, That's a trend that cannot be simply explained by differences in individual effort. This is the legacy of racism and, and, and white supremacy in wealth building. In the United States, it feels like there's this myth of meritocracy, right, particularly when it comes to wealth, that people just work really hard and you get what you deserve. But we're seeing that that's not necessarily true. Yeah, I mean, there's no way you can explain, for instance, that racial wealth divide in a simplistic meritocracy story. And yet, I I think that that mythology of deservedness and meritocracy is the single biggest obstacle we have to really facing the dangers of these extraordinary wealth inequalities that we're living through. One out of five households in the United States has zero or negative wealth. 30% of African-American households, zero or negative wealth. And then what we're seeing is this extraordinary concentration of wealth 
and power at the top. Chuck, we spoke to two listeners who called in to talk about their wealth. Uh, One of them is 25 years old. She lives in Omaha, Nebraska. She's a teacher's assistant, and she recently graduated with tens of thousands of dollars in student debt, which is a common story these days. Her dad is a military veteran with disabilities, so most of her family's expenses go to that. How is that or her story indicative of so many young people's struggles with wealth today? The scourge of student debt is one of the reasons why millennials are having a harder time getting ahead. They're unable to save. It's a striking contrast, again, to the post-World War II era when uh, we as a society made uh, some substantial public investments primarily aimed at building a white middle class. But there's generations walking around who went to college in the, in the 60s and 70s and got a free public higher education or very low-cost public higher education. And uh, we've allowed this situation to get away from us. The, you know, the average student debt is like $37,000. Chuck, we got another call from a listener named Julia, and she told us that her grandparents got money from the GI Bill to help build her family's wealth which have been passed down to her. But we don't see a lot of this happening in non-white families, right? That's right. I mean, this is a great example. And I can, I can speak personally as, as someone I would describe as being born on third base, is you can go back a couple generations and see how something like the GI Bill, the Veterans Administration, uh, VA mortgages, uh, farmer's home, FHA mortgage insurance, these low-cost mortgages enabled tens of millions of people to get on the wealth-building train. But because of the legacy of racism and discrimination, a lot of people of color, blacks, Latinos, First Nations folks, were left at the station uh, waiting for the train that never showed up. Today, someone wants to buy a house, they have to go out into this complicated, you know, somewhat predatory mortgage market and try to find and shop around and find a good deal, just like getting a student loan, you know, 15 varieties. But that was not the case for a previous generation. Uh, People just got low-interest mortgages, access to college, and that launched another generation. And I think it's important to say we can do that again. So that's my next question is what is the federal government's role in trying to close this gap and how effective? I mean, let's be honest. I don't know if wealth inequality is at the top of the list of priorities for this current administration. Well, it's not on this administration isn't concerned about it. In fact, it seems to be compounding it with the current tax cut. But The U.S. public and public opinion really is very concerned about these wealth inequalities that we're talking about. I mean, people widely support restoring the progressivity of the tax system. You know, there's a group in California that's pressing to fund public higher education by bringing back a tax on inheritances. Um, So I think there's a growing movement in states to do this. And I think there's an undercurrent of pressure pushing up to reverse these extreme inequalities. Let's say we are unable to do that and these extreme inequalities grow. What do you see being the impact of that long term? Well, we're already an economic and racial apartheid society, but we will only move more in that direction. The the French economist Thomas Piketty says we're moving toward becoming a hereditary aristocracy of wealth and power where the sons and daughters of today's billionaires will dominate our economy, politics, culture, and philanthropy. So play this out. If we, if we don't intervene to reverse these extreme inequalities, uh, we're going to become more polarized, more unstable. And, and I argue it would be bad for everyone. We, we like to think, oh, this is good for rich people. But actually, 
extreme inequality creates economic volatility, social unrest. It undermines the quality of life and public health for everyone. Uh, so it's really no, in no one's interest to just keep going on autopilot the way we are. Chuck Collins is the co-editor of Inequality.org at the Institute for Policy Studies and the author of Born on Third Base. Chuck, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Tanzina.